Uh, so there's four teams left in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, there is a team from uh, North Carolina, another team from Florida, and, uh, and then the two other teams are in Dallas and in Las Vegas. What do all four of those teams have in common? None of them have snow or ice. And none of them are Canadian. A Canadian team has not won the Stanley Cup since 1993. Now, the first player to hoist the Stanley Cup in 1993, and I'm sorry, I know we're in Toronto, the last Canadian team to win the Stanley Cup was the Montreal Canadiens. And the player who hoisted the Stanley Cup was named Denis Savard. He was a French-Canadian, a hockey player, and he hoisted the Stanley Cup. But the interesting thing is he didn't play in the game. He was wearing a suit. He was on the bench. You see, Denis Savard was a, he was a French-Canadian player. He was a favorite on the Montreal uh, uh, Canadiens. And he was one of the best players on the team. But the thing that's unique about the Stanley Cup, you see when the teams win it, they hold it over their heads and there's sort of the the cup part at the top and then the, the stem of the cup is so big. That's because every player that has won the Stanley Cup that is on the team actually gets their name engraved into the cup. No other trophies like that. You get your name engraved, but there's like a minimum requirement of games that you have to play in order to get your name on the cup. Denny Savard was one of the best players on the Montreal Canadiens, so of course his name was already going to be on the cup. But there was another player who was one game short. And so Denny Savard decided to sit the game out so that this nobody player, I can't even remember his name, I was trying to look on Google last night and this morning, I can't find the player's name, just so that this player could get his name written on the cup. Now this is a huge risk. I mean, Denny Savard, I mean, he might have been the one who scored the winning goal. Or, 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 and it was a risk even for the coach to let Savard sit out. But Savard had so much trust that his team was going to win that he sat out the game. That's a pretty incredible example of sacrifice, of generosity, of thinking about someone more than yourself. The title for today's message is is God's Promises and Our Possessions. God's Promises and Our Possessions. And uh, the, the, the big idea that we're going to see from this passage which Charmaine read to us is this, is that faith in God's promises makes us gracious in our relationships and generous with our resources. Gracious in our relationships and generous with our resources. So let let me pray as we uh, dive into this this beautiful story. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this church. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here in your name and to sing your praise. And Lord, we've lifted our voices to you and now we pray, God, that we would hear your voice speaking uh, to us, Lord, and that your living and active word would, would, would be spoken with clarity and with power through this imperfect messenger. And so God, we love you and we look to you. We want to hear from you, not to merely receive information, but to experience transformation by the power of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 13, verse 1 begins uh, by saying, so Abram went up from Egypt. He's, He's coming back from Egypt. Now, uh, there, there's a bit of a, a background there, isn't there? Um, Abram had been 
given this promise and Ur of the Chaldeans, he had traveled hundreds of kilometers to get to the promised land. And when he arrived in the promised land, he's building altars, he's worshiping God, he's close to the Lord. But then he experiences struggle, he experiences a famine. The promised land is not producing crops. And so at the first sign of hardship, Abram hits eject. And he's like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going after security and comfort. I'm not staying here and going to trust in God's promises. So Abram makes the sinful decision. There's no altar. There's no prayer. There's no calling on the name of the Lord. He goes down to Egypt. Abram makes one bad decision. Then he follows it up with another bad decision. This whole, hey, Sarah, pretend you're my sister plan. And Abram thought that, you know, Since his wife was so attractive, there was going to be some Joe Egyptian who was going to come along and say, hey, I really want to marry your sister. And Abram's like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Sure, you can marry my sister. And Abram was probably thinking that he'll sort of delay, you know, let's have a long engagement and let's talk about the dowry and how about you give me the dowry now. And then Abram was probably thinking that in the middle of the night, they were just going to run off. But it wasn't Joe Egyptian that was interested in Sarai. It wasn't showing, it was the Pharaoh. And so they were trapped. But God had miraculously rescued them through plagues and brought them safely out of Egypt. Chapter 13, verse verse 1 says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife. That would be an awkward conversation on the way home. So how was the palace? And Sarah's just looking at him like cut eyes, like sideways all the time. Whew. And Lot with him into the Negeb. Verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Now, again, every time we read the Bible, we always want to hear it first through the ears of the original audience. And that would have caught the attention of the original audience. Here is Abram leaving, escaping Egypt with livestock. He's rich in livestock and silver and in gold. You see, the original audience in Exodus chapter 12, they left as a mixed multitude. And they were very, and and, and a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And if you read Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 closely, you see that Abram kind of went through his own exodus before the exodus. Like, the first point is obvious. He's, he's in Egypt and he's headed to the promised land. But if you look at the, compare the stories, you see that they both had plagues. Pharaoh says to Abram and Pharaoh says to Moses, take and go. They're both sent away. They're both being described as going up and they have lots of livestock and silver and gold. And so the people of Israel are hearing this story, thinking that this is kind of like how God has saved us. And in the same way, we can understand that God works in patterns. He doesn't do the exact same thing twice in a row, but there's a certain way that God moves among his people. It's also true that even in the New Testament, you see all of these parallels between what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross and the exodus. The, the concept of being set free, freedom from slavery to sin. And how the Lord's Supper is like the Passover meal. And the parting of the Red Sea is described like, like a baptism. 
So we have all of these parallels that God is working always in these patterns. Then look with me at verse 3. It says, And he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Underline that line. At the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai. Verse 4. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. Underline that. At the beginning. At the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram had had wandered off the path. And Phil walked us through that passage uh, last week. Abram was moving forward by faith. He had gone into the promised land, but then he, he got off track because of fear. And now he's getting back on track. In fact, he's completely retracing his steps. Chapter 12 had him start out in Bethel, and then he went to the Negev. And then he went down to Egypt. And now chapter 13 says he's going up from Egypt to the Negev and eventually lands at Bethel. And Abram is doing what he should have done when the famine came. Let's go to the next slide. In chapter 12, Abram had built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. But when the famine hits, there's no description of an altar. There's no description of prayer or calling on the name of the Lord. Abram just does what he thinks he should do. He was trusting in his own heart and his own understanding rather than leaning on the wisdom of God. But now, Abram is returning. He's coming back. Genesis 13, 4. He went to the place where he had made an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. So Abram is in a good place spiritually. He's gone back to the place where he was at the beginning. Back to the place where he was at first. Now, you might be here today and you've wandered away from the Lord and somehow you ended up back at church this morning. And you might be wondering, what do I do? How do I get back to the Lord? Listen, this, it's very simple. Just go back to the things that you were doing at first. Last week, Phil uh, shared this passage from the words, from the mouth of Jesus in Revelation 2. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you had done at first. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the cross. Go back to the gospel. That is where we are to start. It's interesting, too, that Abram built an altar. You see, it all, it all starts with worship, doesn't it? When we sin, we often ask ourselves, what, what was I thinking when I did that? But the real question is not what were you thinking. The question is what were you worshiping? What was, what was most important in your life when you made that decision? Questions of right and wrong, questions of morality, questions of holiness versus worldliness, questions of living by the Spirit versus living by the flesh is always a question of worship. What are we worshiping? So we got to return to the things that we were initially about basic discipleship, gospel, forgiveness, grace, basic disciplines, being in the word of God, being in community. This is how we sum, sum things up here at Hope Church. There's four things that we are aiming to do together. We aim to worship Jesus together. We aim to walk with Jesus together. We aim to work for Jesus together. And we aim to witness of Jesus together. These are the things that we have done at first. From the moment our church was started 
till 14 or 15 years later, we are still about these things. And we're aiming to do them biblically and relationally and prayerfully. So are you doing the things that, that we're supposed to be doing? This is basic discipleship. This isn't Hope Church. This is just the Bible. It's about worship. Are you gathering weekly? Are you coming together? Are you, are you just passively observing the service? Or are you wholeheartedly participating in the singing and the sharing? And are you walking with Jesus? Are you relating to him personally by opening up his word and allowing him to speak to you? And then are you opening up your heart and speaking to him through prayer? And are you walking alone or are you walking in the context of community because we're supposed to be walking with Jesus together? And are you working? Are you serving the Lord to build up the body of Christ? Sometimes, you know, you get involved in a new church and you sign up to serve in the kids ministry and the youth ministry and the facility ministry and the finance ministry and all of it. And all of a sudden your whole calendar is filled and then sometimes we just back off completely. But the question is, are you actually, if something isn't right with you spiritually, you've got to ask yourself, am I worshiping? Am I walking? Am I working? Am I using the gifts that God has given me to build up the body of Christ? And then lastly, am I witnessing? Well, when's the last time you actually sat down with someone and unpacked and explained the gospel? This is what healthy Christianity looks like. Are we doing the things that we have been called to do from the first? Sometimes we can just completely overcomplicate things. Just keep it simple. Are you worshiping? Are you walking? Are you working? And are you witnessing? And are you doing it in the, together in the context of, of community? So this is really encouraging because uh, Genesis chapter 12 was not a good look for Abram. Like, <laughs> it was not good. He's left the promised land and which God had promised the land, and he's no longer in the land. And Abram had promised him offspring, which requires his wife to make that happen. And his wife is now in the arms of another man. This is not good for Abram. But now we see him returning to the Lord. We see repentance in action. He's retracing his steps. He's doing the things that he had done at the beginning, at the first. And so what we should expect is now everything's great in Abram's life. Now that Abram is right with the Lord, he doesn't have any more problems. Is that how the Christian life goes? No. Abram has this sort of unexpected problem. Look at, look at verse 5. It says, and Lot, oh boy, Lot. Okay, this is the beginning of a, of a trilogy of stories involving Lot's knucklehead nephew, Lot. And we get a little bit of a picture into his character in contrast with Abram's uh, character. So it says, and, and Lot went with Abram, all, and he also had flocks and herds and tents, verse 6, so that the Lord could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. If you're taking notes today, I want you to jot something down that might sound a little bit uh, surprising or counterintuitive. It's this, that prosperity can produce problems. Uh, there are all kinds of churches that are filled with people. And there's a guy at the front, and he's holding a Bible in his hand. But he talks about the Bible being like, like it's some sort of book of spells that if you say the right things and speak the right kinds of words that that will lead to the ultimate goal, which is not the glory of God, but the prosperity of people. And prosperity is like the end game. 
The whole reason why we follow God and the whole reason why we come to church is so that we would become prosperous. Prosperity is not the end game. In fact, we see here that Abram's very prosperous. He's rich in livestock. His lot is wealthy too, but prosperity actually causes problems. We don't often think that. There's a, there is a prosperity gospel out there, this idea that, that God is really just a means to an end. It's not really about God, it's about you being healthy and wealthy and rich. And so you use God, you use the Bible, you say certain things to speak certain realities into existence. You become like God, you say, let there be this, or let me be rich. And God has to do your bidding. That, that's the prosperity God. It's so backwards. It's so wrong. There's also, a, there's also a poverty gospel. This idea that wealth is somehow inherently evil and, and, and that it, it's wrong to, to possess it. Both of those things are wrong. But Wealth can lead to problems. Look, look at verse 6. It says that the land could not support them. They had logistical challenges because of their wealth. They had too much stuff. And then there's also not just logistical problems, but relational problems. It says that there was strife between Abram's herdsmen and the, the herdsmen belonging to Lot. You know, the great 1990s prophet, Notorious B.I.G., had it right. Mo money, mo problems. I don't know what they want from me. Seems like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. Prosperity is not the end game. Prosperity oftentimes brings challenges into our life. It's interesting, there's a, there's a typo in this next slide, but I'll show it anyway. That should say chapter 12, contrasted with chapter 14. So just in your mind, erase the chapter 13, make that 12. Erase chapter 14, make that 13. In chapter 13, there's a famine. Abram has too little. And that was a trial that he faced. Chapter 14, now he's got too much. But there's strife as, as a result. In fact, the word severe to describe the word famine is the same word for rich in chapter 13, verse 2. It means heavy. It means burdensome. There was a heavy, serious, burdensome famine, and now there is a heavy burden that comes with the wealth that Abram and Lot had been entrusted with. For some of us, most of us, the burden, the trial that we will face as it relates to finances will be not having enough. The bills say this. <laughs> Our paycheck says something very different. There isn't enough. Some of us, that is the greatest financial trial we'll ever face. It's just not having enough. Others of us will face a different kind of a trial. It's still a trial. Is having too much. And the burden and the weight of handling what has been entrusted to you. We, we, need to, we need to be done with the idea that the only people who are having financial challenges are people who don't have enough. People who have too much have a financial challenge as well. It is a trial. And it was for Abram. 
So we need the wisdom. We need the wisdom of the word of God. Like in the book of Proverbs chapter 30, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me the food that is needful for me. Does that sound familiar? Give us today our daily bread. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. The danger with having too much is, is money can easily become a God. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. And if you have too much, it's the danger of money becoming your God. But if you have too little, money becomes your God as well because you think you need to disobey what the true God says, you shall not steal, in order to do what the God money is telling you is that you need to steal in order to survive. And the Apostle Paul just hit it right on target in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's lived in Genesis chapter 12, and he's lived in Genesis chapter 13. And here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can live in the context of scarcity and trust Christ. And I can live in the context of abundance and trust Christ. Both present trials in our lives. So prosperity can produce problems. But Abram, we're going to see, this is a good look for Abram. This is a good moment. There's going to be lots of ups and downs as we continue the story of Abram's life. But right now, Abram is living by faith in God's promises. And so faith in God's promises makes us gracious in our relationships and generous with our resources. So that if you're taking notes today, jot, jot this down, that generosity can produce peace. Generosity can produce peace. Now, Abram could have just strong-armed his nephew. He could have done a hostile takeover and, and took on all of uh, Lot's wealth as all. He could have put Lot in his place economically and socially, relationally, because Abram was the uncle. He was the eldest. He could have just told Lot to get in line, make sure your herd's been knock it off. There shouldn't be any strife because I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the oldest. I'm the uncle. You need to listen to me. But that's not what Abram does. He chooses to be gracious. He chooses to be generous. Look at his perspective in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. And here's the reason. For you, for, sorry, for we are kinsmen. We are family, he says. Think about a conflict that you've had in the last four hours or the last four days or the last four weeks or the last four months. Think about a conflict that you had. A disagreement with someone, an argument, chances are it was with a family member. And sometimes we need to, we need to just step back. Some of you are looking at each other and laughing. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was you. Some, sometimes we just need to take a little bit of a step back and think about who, who is the person that I'm fighting with right now? Because oftentimes, like if, if, if you're married, oftentimes it's your spouse. The person who you've promised to have and to hold till death do you part, richer or poorer, better or worse, sickness or health. 
And sometimes you need to take a step back and just get a little bit of perspective. And like, I made some promises to this person. Sometimes it's, it's, your, it's your son or your daughter, it's a child, and you just need a little bit of perspective. The mama bear needs to remember, yeah, I, you, were, you were inside of me. I, I carried you. For, you were this tiny little, now you're driving me crazy as a teenager, but you used to be this tiny little squirt. And I love you with a love that I never understood possible. And we, and, and, Sometimes you just need to take a little bit of perspective. Just like Abram said, like, Law, you're my nephew. I remember when you were born. I remember holding you in my arms. I remember weeping with you when your father died. We're family. And we can't let this get in the way because we're kinsmen. We need that perspective. And even if the person who we're not arguing with was, was, might not have been biological family... We have lots of arguments with our spiritual family members as well, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, we need a little bit of perspective. We need to remember that Jesus suffered and died on the cross for me, and Jesus suffered and died on the cross for you. And so whatever is in between us right now, we need to make sure that the cross is at the center of our relationship. We need to have the right perspective. To say, we're, we're family. And so Abram chooses to be abundantly generous here. And in verse 9, he kind of like jumps the shark here. He says, it is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram promises, he, he gives him the whole promised land. So I don't know if this is like foolish, reckless Abram. <laughs> like, it's sort of like giving away his wife, messing up that part of the promise. Now he's giving away the land, messing up that part of the promise. I think there's something deeper going on here. I think Abram has learned some important lessons. And I think Abram recognized that what went down in Egypt just showed that God was with him and for him. And now he's back in the land. And I, I think he's... He's telling Lot, hey, you can have whatever you want because God ultimately has promised this to be. In, in, in nine chapters, Abram's going to offer his son Isaac, the, the offspring, the promised child. The book of Hebrews says that Abram offered him because he knew that he could receive him back from the dead. He knew that Isaac could be resurrected. So maybe Abram offered all the land to Lot saying, well, I'm going to get it anyway because God's promises are so trustworthy. But Abram, is the, he's the eldest, he's the uncle, he's the wealthiest, he's the one who's received all the promises, and yet Abram, he holds all the cards, and he puts all his cards on the table, and he puts his cards, and he puts them in Lot's hand, and he says, you make the next play, you make the next move. He, he told Lot, you can have first dibs on any of the lands you want. No erases. He's being generous. Abram didn't walk into the situation, into this conflict, and, sit and, and ask himself, what do I deserve from Lot? As the elder, as the uncle, what should Lot do for me? No, Abram spins it all around and says, what can I do for Lot? 
when we were uh, teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians in Rwanda a couple weeks ago, Aaron Best and I, we had a conversation towards the end of the week with one of the, one of the students. And he was, he was putting together everything that we were sharing about, you know, 1 Corinthians says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And Paul talked about surrendering his rights. He had a right to earn a salary, but he didn't take it. He had, he had the right to have a wife, but he, 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 didn't, he didn't take a wife. And he challenged the first Corinthians. Of course you have a right to take your brother or sister to court, but it's better not to. Of course you have a right to eat food sacrificed to idols, but it's better not to. Of course the women had a right to pray with their head uncovered, but out of respect for their husband and the Lord, they should choose not to. So all of the, all of the emphasis on rights and responsibilities and relationships and uh, John, one of the students, he's actually one of the worship leaders at the church, you can tell by the scarf. Um, he said, love and rights are enemies. If you're focused on your rights, you won't be focused on loving your neighbor. And Abram here just shows this incredible generosity. He's not focused on what he deserves or what he ought to have. He tells Lot, hey man, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go north, I'll go south. You see, Abram had experienced the generosity of God. God had given him the whole land. Because Abram knew that God was generous, he was able to be generous and gracious with Lot. So when we're dealing with conflict, it's important to recognize oftentimes conflict comes with family. And we need to take a step back and recognize that. Also, when we experience conflict, we need to take a step back and remember, how did God resolve the conflict between him and me? He resolved the conflict by being sacrificial, by being gracious, by being generous, by giving his only son. And so we need to have that perspective when we find ourselves in conflict. And because God has been gracious to us, we can be gracious to others. Abram here is being a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When we make peace and make sacrifices and are generous in order to make peace, we're being a chip off the old block. We're, it's the family resemblance is coming through because we're sons and daughters of God when we keep the peace. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We need to make peace. We need to remember that people matter more than possessions. Abram understood that. People, your family, your friends, your church family, the lost in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, People matter more than possessions. And then also we need to understand that on, on secondary issues within the body of Christ, it's more important to keep the relationship than to prove that you're right. Lot here had a skewed view. I mean, there shouldn't have been strife. Lot just should have come under in submission. This is my uncle. I'm following him. Lot should have just worked it out. But Abram knew that God was patient with him and gracious with him. And so Abram is patient and gracious with Lot as well. Keeping the relationship on secondary issues is more important than proving that you're right. 
So Abram has faith in God's promises, and that has made him gracious in his relationships and generous with his resources. Now let's, let's look at Lot's response. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley. It was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. It looks like Eden. Well, this is a good place. But then it says, like the land of Egypt. Hmm, maybe not such a good place. In the direction of Zor, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Definitely not a good place. But Lot here, in contrast to Abram, is not walking by faith. He's walking by sight. And here's what happens when we make decisions and when we walk by sight. Walking by sight will lead to a place of wickedness. Lot looked and he saw the pathway to prosperity was in the Jordan Valley, was down south of the Dead Sea, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Zor, and Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a prosperous place. I'm going to go there without thinking about the spiritual cost, without thinking of what were the moral and cultural standards of the place where he was going. Lot was only thinking by sight. He wasn't acting on faith. He was trusting what his eyes could see. And his eyes were flashing dollar signs. That I've got a lot right now, but I can get more. Abram was like, I'm willing to give it all up. But Lot was like, how can I get more? Abram was giving. Lot was grasping. Thank you very much. I'll take the nicest part of the land of Canaan. The whole Jordan Valley. All the access to fresh water. And I'll take the most prosperous area in Zor, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if we go back to chapter 13, verse 3, let's just get the precise geographic location where they were. They, he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Not artificial intelligence, but, a, but a, just a place called Ai. Now, so here it is geographically. Uh, so Bethel is there, and, and Ai is there just to the southeast. And so they're in between these two areas. And Abram says, hey, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And so Lot chooses to go right. He chooses to go in the direction of Ai. He turned away from a place called Bethel, which means the house of God. And he turned toward a place called Ai, which means heap of ruins. I mean, the place names, <laughs> just simply the place names should have been, you know, you know, when you factor in the name of this place and the name, maybe I should go in the direction of the house of God. But how often do we leave behind the presence of God and the promises of God thinking that the grass is greener, but it really just turns out to be a heap of ruins? It's not looking good for Lot. Look at verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. That's not a good sign. Journeying east? I mean, historically, uh, in the book of Genesis so far, I mean, Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, what direction did they go? East. Cain, when he was cursed after killing Abel, where, what direction did he go? East. Uh, the people who uh, built the Tower of Babel, they, they journeyed east. Going east is not a good sign. And yet this is where Lot chose to go. 
Abram here looks a lot like God. God is generous. God gives. Abram's being generous. Abram is giving. Lot here is looking a lot like Adam. Grasping. Taking. John Calvin sums up this text beautifully when he says, let us learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted, but that we must rather be on guard lest we be ensnared by them. Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Yes, it looked like the garden of the Lord, but it also looked like Egypt. It was also in the east. It was also where Sodom and Gomorrah was. So who are you more like? When you come to a crossroads moment and you need to make a decision, are you more like Abram or are you more like Lot? What are you focused on? Are you focused on the long term like Abram or the short term like Lot? Are you focused on eternal blessings or on immediate benefits? Are you focused on unseen promises by faith or are you following your eyes and living by sight? What fruit is that producing in your life? Are, are you experiencing the fruit of peace and generosity like Abram or strife and selfishness like Abram? Sorry, like Lot. Some of you are at crossroads moments in your life right now, in your relationships, in your family, in your work. And you need to ask yourself, am I approaching this decision like Lot or am I appro- approaching this decision like Abram? See, Abram was trusting in God's promises and so he was able to be generous and gracious where Lot is selfish and it leads to a place of wickedness. He ends up living right in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what about Abram? In contrast, you've got Lot who's walking by sight, and then you've got Abram who's walking by faith. And and we learned here that walking by faith will lead to a place of worship. It will lead to a place of worship. And God here appears to Abram. Now, you got to be thinking, again, I don't know what was going through Abram's mind, but Abram was a little bit of a manipulator, right? We already know that with the whole Sarai incident with Pharaoh. I kind of wonder if Abram was sort of like, you know, a couple of guys who go out for breakfast and then the, the bill comes and they both reach for their wallet and they're like, oh, I'll pay. And no, 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 no. Oh, you and like that, that sort of like you go through that little drama. And sometimes like you pull out your wallet and you're like, I really hope he pays. But if I really press early, then he'll bring out his wallet and I'll be like, okay, fine. But Abram's like, no, I'll bring out my wallet. It'll cost me. And then Lot's like, okay, sounds good. That's great. I wonder if Abram's like second-guessing himself. Like, did I just lose the trade here? Like, but God very intentionally in this moment where Abram's vulnerable, he just made this huge generous move, this selfless move. He's vulnerable, vulnerable at this moment. God appears to him and he tells him in verse 14, lift up your eyes. Lot had his opportunity to lift up his eyes in verse 10. And now God says, no, no, Abram, you lift up your eyes. And he says, look from place, the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you into your offspring forever. 
God gives this reminder of assurance. He says, Abram, I made a promise to you. And I, and I will follow through on this promise. North, south, east, west. It's all, even the territory that Lot has now, it's still yours, Abram. And then he, he amplifies the promise in verse 16. He says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Now, at first, that doesn't sound very nice, right? Like, to call someone dust or to say, like, your children are going to be like, dust is what our feet touch. A dust is dirty. Dust is small. Dust is worthless. But you got to, some biblical metaphors don't land on us <laughs> quite the way that we want them to. But keep reading. He says, you will be like the dust of the earth. And then he says, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So it wasn't about the value of dust. It was about how dust is everywhere and how dust can't be counted. And God uses three similes to, to describe, to paint a picture for Abram to understand what his descendants are going to be. Three things that can't be counted. They're like dust in Genesis 13, like the stars in the sky in Genesis 15, and like sand on the seashore in Genesis 22. And, and I mean, and he, here's the thing. There, there was a time where you know, it was said about the people of Israel that they were like the sand on the sea, that they couldn't be counted, but they still could be counted. I mean, the kings of Israel took a census and were able to count how many people they, they had, how many warriors there were. Because the, the offspring that can't be counted doesn't ultimately show up until the book of Revelation. When it's not just the physical descendants of Abram, but the spiritual descendants, because all those who are of faith are sons and daughters of Abraham, who is the father of faith. So in Revelation, that, that group of people that cannot be counted from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, that's us. We're the dust. We're the stars. We're the sand on the seashore. And then God tells Abram, I really want you to experience this. You've been walking by faith, Abram, but I really want you to see it. So he says in verse 17, I, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Walk around all 480,000 square kilometers of territory that I'm giving to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. Now let's look at the map here. Now this is initially concerning. He was between Bethel and Ai, and now he's gone to Hebron. Oh no, he's heading south again. <laughs> the last time he went south, everything went south. This is not a good, he's going to end up in the Negev, he's going to end up in Egypt, but no. no. Now he's, he's heard God reiterate the promises, and so he, he does go to Hebron, but it says, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This, Hebron was a place of highest elevation in that area. He would have been able to see most of the land at that point. This is the place where Abram was going to be buried. This was going to be the family burial ground in Hebron. And this is where he built another altar. Remember, when he left Egypt and he came back... He went to an altar, and now, now that he's seen the promise, now that he's walked around the land, now that he's, he's given and been generous and seen God reemphasize the promise, now he builds an altar. 
This story here, uh, Moses often writes in a chiastic structure where you have the beginning and the end match and the middle sections match. So you, it begins and ends with an altar. In the middle, there's Abram giving the land to Lot, which is kind of paralleled with God giving the land to Abram. Right in the middle is Lot choosing Sodom. But it begins and it ends with altars. It begins and it ends with worship. Because again, when we come to those crossroads decisions, how do I resolve this conflict? Should, what, what, what should I do with this opportunity that is in front of me? Ultimately, every decision, every question is a decision and a question about worship. And this is, this is as good as it gets for Abram. <laughs> if we're going to follow Abram's example, this is, one of, this is the one of the spots where we should be looking. There are some real highs for Abram. This is one of them. There are also some real lows. But this high point right now begins and ends with worship, begins and ends with an altar. When we were looking at these passages together, you know, we have a teaching team meeting where Deborah and Phil and Andrew, we get together on a weekly basis and talk about the passages that we're teaching. And Andrew, I thought about 1 Samuel chapter 7, where Samuel builds an altar and he calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And, and altars are kind of like that, that, that Samuel could look, like, look how far we've come. God helped us to get this far. And Abram here could see the growth in his character and could see God's promise and God's provision and God's power in his life. And so Abram decides, I want to worship right here, right now. I want to build, I always want to remember this moment right now. To sort of put a stake in the ground, to put some stones on the ground. So like, just like I could come back to the altar at Bethel, I want to be able to come back to this altar and to remember what God did in my life at this season. And that, that's what we need to do. Because we're going to keep reading the story. We're going to see Abram's going to keep wandering. This is a high point. There's going to be some other low points. But Abram had some altars. He had some places where he could go back, where he could remember God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's promise in his life. And so I'm going to invite the, the musicians and the singers to come back out and and we're going to sing a, a familiar song that talks about uh, an Ebenezer. Come thou found of every blessing. Which, which has that beautiful line that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And, and, and the hymn writer says, I, I, I want to raise an Ebenezer. And, and we're, we're just modifying the, the words of the song to say, just, I, I'm raising an altar. I, I want to remember what God has done in my life. I don't want to forget it was worshiping something other than God that made me wander from him and I want to return to him and I want to worship him. I want to build an altar. I don't want to remember God's goodness and God's promise in my life. So I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing this beautiful uh, old hymn. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus who suffered and died for us on the cross and who rose again, leaving the tomb empty. We thank you that we can come to those two realities, Christ suffering for us and rising again in glorious life. 
God, we want to worship you in this moment. We want to recognize the the difference that you have made in our lives. We want to be people who are characterized by grace and by generosity. We want to be known as sons and daughters of God. So God, help us to remember what you have done in our lives so that we can show grace and generosity to others. Lord, we we know we're, we're like Abram. We're prone to wander. And so God, I pray that you would draw us close to you, that as the psalm, as the hymn says, Lord, bind us like a fetter, Lord, chain us to you, chain us to the, the mountain of your presence so that we can always worship you and not wander from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.